what Aristotle recognizes that women are certainly rational and they're certainly human beings. But the kind of reasoning that he didn't think women could do was philosophical reasoning, reasoning about first principles. So in that sense, women are sort of partially rational. I mean, we're actually right back there with this Google memo. And here's where I'm going to get real politically incorrect. Can we refer to something that's current? This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. I'm Deb Gregory, curator of the Betwixt podcast. Okay, Google, say hello. Good day. That's how they say hello in Australia. How can I help? Okay, Google. 안녕하세요. Auf Wiedersehen. That's goodbye in German. Yeah, but I say hello in Korean. Today we're hanging with Google as we continue with our series of the image of God and the feminine experience. If you're just joining the discussion, we're talking about the experiences of women caught between male-normed philosophical and theological interpretations of the image of God. For more information about the series, visit BetwixPodcast.com, where you can listen to the introductory episode to this series, and part two, where we talk with Dr. Hannah Hunt about female men of God and the influence of Hellenistic thought on early Christian concepts of the Imago Dei. Okay, Google, what is the Imago Dei? According to PBS, Imago Dei, a theological term applied uniquely to humans, which denotes the symbolical relation between God and humanity. Okay, great. The authority of PBS. Today we begin part three, the Google memo and post-enlightenment rationalism. We'll move from Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas through the enlightenment and grind to a stop with the infamous Google memo, which has kicked up yet another heated gender battle in our current times. Our guest will tease out how enlightenment rationalism continues to impact women today. So here's the deal. I wanted to talk to a Christian who knows something about theology, philosophy, church history, and is tuned into the experiences of women. But let me tell you, this is a tall order. Okay, Google, name a Christian who knows something about theology, philosophy, church history, and feminism. My apologies. I don't understand. And then this summer, I met Rachel Duchamp. Okay, Google. Who is Dr. Rachel Duchamp? Here are the top search results. Hey, look, there she is. Lindenwood University Research Fellow. Oh, and hey, she's got her own website, rachelduchamp.com. Cool. Thanks a lot, Google. No problem. Dr. Duchamp is philosophy professor at Lindenwood University. She is director of the Liberty and Ethics Center at the Hammond Institute of Free Enterprise. Her research interests extend from Aristotle's virtue theory through the work of Thomas Aquinas and David Hume, and her current work digs into issues of justice and the virtues of living in a free society. So listen into my conversation with Dr. Rachel Duchamp, and take your own memos because we all know that Google is already listening. Okay, Google, are you listening to everything I say? I only listen for okay, Google, so I can be ready to answer. Okay, Google, you're kind of helpful, but sometimes you're a little creepy. Sorry. Hey, Rachel. Hey. Ah. 
there, we go. There you are. Thanks so much for having this chat today and helping me think through the image of God and the feminine experience. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting for me because I don't do feminist philosophy particularly. My area of expertise is political and economic philosophy. And so it's been fun for me just, you know, kind of reflecting on some of the questions you sent. I'm certainly no expert on any of this, but I certainly have a couple of thoughts that I could share. Yeah, that's that's great. Just the conversation, I think, is a good start. I'm not even yeah. really looking to provide answers, but at least something to think about. One of the things that I I like about you is that you kind of are in this really narrow framework of someone who is a Christian, who understands the life of the mind and the philosophical traditions, and you're a woman. <laughs> So <laughs> we are, we're like unicorns. It's a very rare. <laughs> <laughs> Women are 16% of philosophy and guess how many of those are Christians? You know, I mean, so that, that probably is a pretty rare category. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was reading Millard Erickson, who's a theologian on the image of God. And I like the way he broke it down. He said the church has kind of thought of it in three different categories, and they've ebbed and flowed depending on culture and the dominant philosophical framework, you know, that's been popular at different times. Yeah. I'm just curious what you think of that historically. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not a, a theologian, so I'm not an expert on the whole history of Imago Dei as a concept, but I know... Thomas Aquinas's version. Right. I know for sure that he is importing, you know, his philosophical viewpoint into that theological issue. So when he thinks of God's being, you know, he thinks of a being with reason and will. So if we're made in God's image, it's because we are beings with reason and will. I don't think Thomas is wrong. It depends on what we think reason is. Yeah, talk about that, because that's kind of the bedrock of the Hellenistic tradition anyway, but over time, the meaning of reason shifted, right? So how does he see that? Just to complicate things further, the notion of the will, that desire for the good, is, I think, uniquely Christian. The Greeks really don't have it. I mean, Aristotle doesn't. So I don't want to just set the point about the will aside. I actually think that's a really important part of the equation. So it's not just reason. Yes, and Aquinas has a very complicated account of how reason and will sort of talk to each other and inform one another. Let, let's back up and, and tell our listeners who Thomas Aquinas is. Oh, okay. So Thomas Aquinas is a Dominican friar living in the 13th century. Prior to him, in terms of philosophy, Christian thought is dominated by Plato and Platonism. Albert the Great, is his teacher, is given the task of reading all of these works of Aristotle that were suddenly discovered. So the medievals knew about Aristotle, but they knew of him as a logician. Thomas and his teacher, Albert the Great, work through those things together, and he ends up really, it's a huge shift in Christian thought from Platonism to Aristotelianism, which is extremely important. Okay, and talk about like the difference. So there's a lot of differences I could mention, but I'll, given our topic, I'll, I'll mention the one that stands out to me which is that Plato seems familiar to the early Christians because he believes in an afterlife. He believes in a soul. He has a concept called the form of the good, which just sounds like God to them. So everybody figures that Christianity is consistent with Platonism. But the problem is that Plato sees the person, the human person, as uh, just their intellect. 
and he divorces that from the body. So the body is kind of troublesome. It, it gets in the way. Even desires get in the way. You know, they're non-rational. So you want to escape the body. Aristotle, on the other hand, Aristotle was a Platonist for like 20 years, but once Plato dies, he kind of comes out of the closet, you know, and says, actually, I think my teacher was wrong. He decides that being a body is actually essential to being a human person. Mm. Our consciousness expresses itself through our bodies. And so I am, as an individual, totally unique. It's not as though you could just take my consciousness and put it in another body. You can't do that. That wouldn't be me. He, he anchors the notions of, of the forms or the, the ideas, you know, so he's much more anchored to material reality in that sense, which is sort of the turn towards science. So, so when Aquinas reintroduces Aristotle, it's almost like he has this epiphany sort of moment where he says, hey, wait a second, Christianity isn't just about being a soul and my soul floating up to God. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Right? It's almost like you've forgotten about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, we've forgotten about it in our arts, which de-emphasized the body and emphasized the soul and the mind during the medieval period. And so he said, wait a second, you know, Jesus wasn't a ghost, you know, when he resurrected. He was a real body. You could touch him. He ate. He cooked. And, uh, and so we need to embrace an Aristotelian perspective rather than a platonic one. Um, so it was a very, very important turn back to being more anchored in the material world. Okay, that's, that is really helpful. But he still held on to the idea of, of reason, um, but it just shifted in his understanding. Yeah, so I mean, Aristotle still has the notion that the mind can function as something more than just brain activity. But the reason that, that he's defining us in terms of our reason is because he knows that we're animals. We're not vegetables or mineral. Um, so that's our genus, animal. But what is our species? What's specific about us? And he looks around and he goes, oh, well, it's reason, right? I mean, reason is what separates us from the animals. Mm -hmm. And so that's just the definition of a human being. You know, that's right. For Aristotle, that's what you know, gets honed in on. But Aquinas complicates that as a Christian um, by bringing in the will. Um, and really, really Augustine did, you know, Augustine comes up with the notion of the will, if, if, you know, philosophically speaking, I think the Jews always had, it. but, um, Augustine knows that there's something essentially about us that we can say yes or no to God. Mm. And that that is really important to what it is to be human and the dignity and sort of status that we have in creation. And so bring this to the idea of, of Aquinas and the Imago Dei. So for Aquinas, as we get into the stuff about women, which I do have thoughts on, I, I really don't want to just reject Aquinas. The fact that Aquinas um, thinks of God as a being with reason and will is really, really important. There's some sense in which God is reasonable. He's not arbitrary. So that gives rise to the notion of natural law, hmm. that there, there's a law to the way things work physically, and there's a law to the way things work morally. The fact that human beings can choose their eternal situation is a huge factor in the very, very early church rejecting the idea that some people are natural slaves. Hmm. You have guys, I mean, you have priests in the 500s arguing against enslaving, quote unquote, barbarians, right? And so it arises very, very early, and you have a thousand years without slavery. I mean, you know, I think this is a really valuable idea of the Imago Dei, the fact that God desires the good, 
Um, but we also desire the good. The problem with us is that we sometimes misinform our will. And so to understand the way that the intellect and will ping pong back and forth with each other and how that can go right and how that can go wrong, I think is also really, really helpful. So we can talk about the mistakes that are made with gender, but I don't think the underlying concept should be eschewed too quickly. Yes, I think that they inform how we diverge <laughs> off of some biblical ideas and, and kind of follow cultural trends. Right. When it comes to women, though. <laughs> yes, tell me. We do veer off a bit, uh, for sure. And once again, I, I hate to just blame Aristotle here. I actually really like Aristotle, but he does make some mistakes and you can hardly totally blame the guy. He's a pioneer, right? So pioneers aren't going to get everything right. And also, he's going by empirical observation. And the only problem with that is that if there are no educated women around you, then you might come to the conclusion that women can't be educated. Mm. What Aristotle recognizes is that women are certainly rational, and they're certainly human beings. Uh, as a matter of fact, he gives them, you know, the role in the household, which may sound oppressive or something to our ears, um, was actually a very big role. If you were an aristocratic woman, you were basically running a huge business. I mean, it would have been a whole estate, mm. hiring, firing. And so he thought that that sort of reasoning was fitted to women. So nowadays, we would actually think that was fairly enlightened. But the kind of reasoning that he didn't think women could do was philosophical reasoning, reasoning about first principles. Uh, and of course, he, he wasn't around any women who did because you weren't allowed to. You know, so he just came to the conclusion. So in that sense, women are sort of partially rational. And so Aquinas just sort of follows Aristotle. Okay, because history hasn't really improved the state of women <laughs> in all those years. Well, right. And, you know, at the risk of being deeply politically incorrect, I mean, we're actually right back there with this Google memo. So can we refer to something that's current? Yes, go for it. Yes. So the Google memo is really interesting. This is uh, this guy, James Damore at Google, who wrote a memo in response to some um, diversity efforts. And the guy has a master's in evolutionary biology from Harvard, right? And he's going, well, there's sex differences, which is fairly uncontroversial in evolutionary biology. <laughs> in a way, how could there not be, right? I mean, women are bearing children, etc. And so you just have a different evolutionary story that's being told. He says there's sex differences. And he doesn't actually say that women are less fitted or suited or able to do these really sort of abstract puzzles that you have to be able to do at Google. He says they're not as interested. Mm -hmm. In some sense, I actually think he's right about that. Maybe I'm committing a terrible sin here, um, but I don't know. So. And, and here's why. So my dissertation was on David Hume, a Scottish Enlightenment guy, and Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson and Francis Hutcheson. These are all Scottish Enlightenment guys. Okay. And they're all objecting to something that's happening in the Enlightenment, the rest of the Enlightenment, right? John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and Descartes, for God's sake. I mean, think about somebody like Descartes. You know, you have this totally deductive approach. I think, therefore, I am who establishes thought and the mind totally independently of the body. And then he's got what's called the mind-body problem, right? How do I, how does my mind even interact with my body? He creates this centuries-long mystery, you know, that everybody's trying to solve. <laughs> Everyone sits on their toilets and tries to solve. Tries to solve, right. <laughs> what the Scottish Enlightenment guys are saying is, stop thinking of reason as just calculative, Right? They're like, reason is so much richer than that. There's imagination, there's association, there's tradition and custom, there's wisdom. And so I really am attracted to that, where what we're saying is that, that reason is just far deeper than being a calculator. Mm. 
computers can calculate much better than human beings, but there is a ton of stuff computers cannot do. And we can do because we're creative. Right. To me, having a richer account of what rationality is, is going to sort of save us from this problem. Mm. So women, and here's where I'm going to get real politically incorrect. So I apologize in advance and I am issuing a trigger warning. (laughs) (laughs) Women are by our biology tied down to the material world in a way that men can, if they want to, sort of escape. Prior in a monastery contemplating the eternal verities, <laughs> you know, isn't uh, having their period or having a baby or... <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> their breasts are not hurting at random times of the month. <laughs> right, exactly, right, exactly. And so there's something about being female that the feminist movement, I, I don't know, there seem to be two strands. The one is sort of the in a different voice strand where we're saying we are different, but our differences are value-added versus the other hand, which is demanding that the differences that we have are purely social in nature Mm. and not natural or biological. And this is the big debate that Demore's memo is creating, or one of the debates. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's so sad that we've gotten so into this notion of calculative reason being what really counts And all of these other types of reason sometimes aren't even acknowledged as part of what reason is. You know, we immediately think that if women are just less interested in tech, then somehow we're inferior. Why is that inferior? I mean, it could be that, yes, you have some women who are interested in tech, but you're never going to see 50% women in tech because the idea of sitting around solving abstract puzzles all day just doesn't attract women as much as it attracts men. The more economically free women are, And the more choices they have, the fewer women who go into STEM. When we're actually free to choose what we want to do, a lot of women don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Some women do, and we should, I think, be extremely supportive of them. And we should certainly not tolerate, you know, good old boys clubs or that kind of behavior. I don't think we should say that because it's not 50%, somebody's oppressing somebody. I, I don't think that's right. And how do you feel about that in your field where you are one of 12%? Are we all, are we down to 12? I thought we were at 16%. Oh, were you at 60 now? <laughs> yes. Well, let's be fair. There's practical reasons too. So for instance, if you take tenure, most women who are going through their PhD program are going to be hitting their childbearing years yes. right the tenure. This is, I have a feminist argument against tenure. Yes, I do too. I'm with you on it. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, it definitely affects it. And there's a ton of women. I mean, we just drop like slack. You get to, you know, you get to that point of completion slash seeking tenure thing. And there may be some sense in which, you know, for sure, when I, when I joined my department, a bunch of women started majoring in philosophy. It definitely affects it. You know, the comfort level of being in philosophy because there's other people there who are like you. Even if all of that were removed, I still think that 50% idea is that's enlightenment rationalism, Mm. that males and females have to be completely equal on, I mean, in terms of their interests, I'm not talking about ability. Women notoriously do better in logic than men. It has nothing to do with ability. It's interest. Some of philosophy can be so pure and abstract that some women, or let's say the majority of women, it doesn't feel fulfilling to them. Where does the rubber meet the road? They, they, they're anchored down. They want to see the application. I studied under one of the best female philosophers alive, Eleanor Stump. She, she has a mind like a steel trap. She would often say to people, what hangs on this? Why does this matter? And so to have that voice in philosophy, I think is extremely important. 
but it also means that some women just won't pursue philosophy. Well, how does this, um, I guess, what impact does this have on how we perceive women as the image of God? Does this have any bearing on how we think of that? Yeah. In my ideal world, I think we could update Aquinas with the Scottish Enlightenment. The role of women actually would be very important because what we would be saying is, yes, God is a being with reason and will. But when we say reason, we mean something that is very rich. It's imaginative, it's associative, it's creative, it's productive, as well as calculative. And so in that sense, the tendencies, and these are just general tendencies, there will always be individual exceptions, but the tendencies of the two genders complement one another in order to represent the whole of what rationality is. And all of those matter. All of those parts matter. They matter much, much more than we thought. And so when you see systems that are purely calculative, like the Cartesian system, Descartes, or like Max Machete, the positivists, these have been dismal failures in the history of philosophy. Mm. It's because of Descartes that we're stuck in postmodernism. He set us up to fail. Thank you. But, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because men have kind of governed the philosophical world and how we, you know, how we talk about it, the conversations, is that why the calculative side has been so strong? I mean, if women have been at the table more, would that have shifted? I think that's a real possibility. I mean, I really want to blame Plato, too, right? I mean, the Gnosticism that has dogged the West Mm. and still does. Um, I mean, now you've got transhumanists saying we can just download our consciousness. We don't even need a body at all. (laughs) Um, On the one hand, it's a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. But would women with our um, very deeply embodied realities, would we have balanced that more? I think we would have. Yeah. And I, and it does make perfect sense to me that, Maybe maleness, I don't want to say maleness all by itself, but maleness egged on by Plato. It's a kind of maleness gone wild. This becomes this purely puzzle-solving, totally abstract, totally removed. And I just don't see women putting up with that. I really don't. And so you think a, a, a more holistic view of the Imago Dei for humans brings together the will and this more fuller picture of rationality. Yes, and I think that's why the Hebrew scriptures depict wisdom as a woman, right? Knowledge is just knowing stuff. Wisdom is knowing how to live it. And so to me, it makes perfect sense that that's that's a feminine kind of attribute. Yes. And then that got lost for a long, long time through history. (laughs) It sure did. I do want to say, I mean, it's relative, right? So it did get lost, and that can make us very angry. On the other hand, something about just the nature of our faith has always us back from the brink. And so you do have a lot in Christian history that's liberating to women. Right. You know, Catherine of Siena and (laughs) Julian of Norwich and people like this, you know, having their abbots beg them to write about their experiences with God and about their philosophical insights. Right. And And I think that's what I find so fascinating about this interplay of church thought and, you know, the philosophical framework of every era every place, they work together in some ways and some ways against. And I think that's really important for us to recognize that a lot of our doctrines 
come out of a response to the main ways we think about our existence. And, but in many ways, we as the church have always been able to stand up against some of these things that are unjust when we can recognize them and really understand uh, what is being taught in the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the scriptures that constantly cause trouble for like the total taking over of the faith by the culture. So even if you have a culture that's lending itself towards something totally oppressive, you've got these just standout scriptures, right? Neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. It's going to just drag people back every time, even if it takes a while (laughs) to work it out, because gosh darn it, we're stubborn and nobody wants to give up their power, that's for sure. You know, there's no denying it. You can't cross out that verse. You can't get rid of it. Yeah, I think that's really great. Is there anything else you'd like to add on to that, especially for women who may for the first time be thinking, gosh, what what does it mean for me to to image God? Or for, for churches who just have never even thought about how are we welcoming women as the image of God? Well, that's a really practical question. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a philosopher. You know, I tend to be on the ideas level, so I kind of, I'd have to give more thought. In general, I'm sort of obsessed with this issue that we have culturally now of kind of running to extremes. And, And I also think this is a product of the Enlightenment, where you sort of, you get one idea, it's very Cartesian, get one idea and then like build out of that one idea, you know, or try and deduce everything from that one idea. And the truth is that reality is just extremely complex. And you, you know, it's, it's, it's rich, it's rich and messy and gritty. And so I think being able to acknowledge sex differences, I hate to say this, but just having some intellectual subtlety. I mean, I just feel like we've become stupid in a way. I mean, we're just simplistic. Like if I say, well, I actually think there are biological sex differences. Like all of a sudden you must mean that, that women are unfit. It's like, nobody said that. And then you can run to the other side, right? And say, oh, we're completely equal. And I, I don't know. So part of me thinks that just being being better educated or smarter or something where we just can appreciate subtlety and complexity and context so that we can take people as they come. Kind of a laziness, like trying to just come up with some rule or generalization and then just sort of download all of our problems. You know what I mean? You know, that's that's really what this whole podcast is about for me. Our ideologies are separating us because they're just binary. Yes. And what I want to do is talk about the things in the middle. You know, liminal space to me is such a vital part of our growth and our flourishing. And we, we completely shut it out of our existence and our thought life. Yeah, there's something really addicting about systematizing where it's like, I've got a system and everything fits, you know. And if you're in the liminal space, that's never how it is, right? It's always messier and more grittier than, than something so clean. I think I totally agree with you about liminal space and, and about philosophers who tend to be on the edges. You know, somebody like Kierkegaard, who is between philosophy and literature. Um, those people, you know, we talk about interdisciplinary stuff nowadays. I mean, those people are the people who are going to make real headway and aren't just going to be asking how many angels dance on the head of a pin. You know what I mean? Yes. And, I th- and that's why I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this. Because, you know, even this this topic of women and the Imago Dei, talking about theology, philosophy, and feminism, I guess, I've had a hard time finding people who are willing to talk about it because they really want to stay in their camp. 
Mm, that's interesting. Yes. It's like, well, I don't really feel comfortable, you know, talking about this because I'm Old Testament guy or I'm a, you know, theology guy. I don't know much about philosophy. So I'm like, wow, you know, like we're, it's so difficult for us to come together and no one's really talking about this space. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you doing that. I mean, I I gave the disclaimer and I'll give it again that, you know, I'm certainly no expert in theology. You know what I mean? I I know what I know. I can throw it out there and maybe somebody will email me and say, you've got it totally wrong. And maybe I'll actually learn something. This has helped me to put some thoughts together myself. Me too. I'm here to learn. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you, Deb. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye. So when it comes to issues like the Google memo, I'm really not sure where I stand. Honestly, I'm I'm reluctant to pitch my tent with either camp. And the point of this podcast isn't really to debate polarizing topics like this, but to offer a different conversation. And this is why I appreciate conversations like this with Rachel Duchant, who can help us to see the history behind how we think about these issues and how they intertwine with our theological understandings, and in this case, our theology of the Imago Dei. Okay, Google, say adios. Alvida, that's goodbye in Hindi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.